So this is again the second Sunday of Advent, a season of waiting, of waiting for the arrival of God's Messiah and all the good things that happen when that happens. Of course, first at Christmas, but also at his second coming at the end of the age, but also in a lot of preliminary ways that he comes to us in between those two events in the spirit when he comes to us in times of prayer, at the table, in friendships, in community, in a sudden turn of events in our lives. We wait for Christ to come in all these ways, and as we wait, the longer we, make, we wait, we might have a question, how long? How long, O oh Lord? How long must we endure what burdens us, what corrupts us in society. How long, Lord, until you come and make things right, all the suffering and sickness, all the debt and poverty and greed, all the division, the oppression, the racism, the wars. How long, Lord, until you come and make these things right? On the earth. I was reading the, the most recent of issue of Christianity Today, and they had this great article on Bono from U2, and it was titled, Bono's Punk Rock Rebellion Was a Cry of Hopeful Lament. And the, uh, the article interviewed, it highlights how U2, they, they emerged of the post-punk era were, were greatly influenced by punk, appreciated a lot of, of what punk was protesting. But the article highlights how they didn't do that, express that rebellion with cynicism. They expressed it in their songs with hopeful lament. And uh, Bono called these songs in the, in the interview, punk rock prayers, <laughs> which are a great description something of, of what they did. A great example is Sunday Bloody Sunday. If you know the song, it's one of uh, their more famous, but also one of their most political, powerful songs. Um, it starts with the line, I can't believe the news today. Oh, I can't close my eyes and make it go away. And instead they respond with this hopeful lament. It's a, it's a response to the, the troubles with the capital T that happened in, in Northern Ireland for about 30 years. And it specifically focuses on this one event in 1972, this one Sunday when 13 Irish unarmed citizens were just shot, shot dead. This response to that and, and really all the troubles that were going on in Ireland. And you feel the lament in, in the song and the hope, both musically and lyrically. It's a brilliant, powerful, beautiful song in that regard. So the song ends with these words, The real battle just begun, Sunday, bloody Sunday, to claim the victory Jesus won, Sunday, bloody Sunday. That's their hope. That's the anchor of their hope. A victory, of course, yeah, emerges on Sunday in the resurrection, but that is out of the work of the cross on another bloody day. And a victory they are confident can make those who are killing one another live as one. 
one of the refrains in the song. And here's the chorus. How long? <laughs> How long must we sing this song? How long? How long? It's a, it's a refrain that works its way into another one of their songs called 40 on the same album, which is a reference to Psalm 40. And uh, they used to finish each of their concerts with this song and with this frame. How long to sing this song? How long uh, until we see this victory? It's a powerful, haunting, beautiful chorus. But of course, they didn't come up with this chorus. They were riffing off of one of their greatest influences, the psalmists, who had been singing this chorus well over 2,000 years before them in Hebrew, in the Psalms. It's one of the refrains in the Psalms, one of the laments we find throughout the Psalms. And in Psalm 13, which we're going to look at today, it's repeated four times. We're looking at the Psalms this Advent to learn from them how to hope as we wait for the coming of our King. As we wait, de profundis, out of the depths, as we heard from our psalm last Sunday. But this Sunday we're going to look at Psalm 13. I've been memorizing the psalms for each Sunday, which has been so good. Because I want psalm, strong psalm synapses in my brain. So you know that's what happens, right? When you memorize something, you form, your brain actually forms biological synapses between your neurons in your brain. That doesn't happen when you let the internet be your memory for you. That happens when you memorize things, learn things by heart. They actually become part of you, part of your biological brain, in fact. So I, I want these hopeful laments to be part of me, part of my brain. I want a, a Psalm 13 synapse in my brain. It's already there because I've been reading and praying and memorizing this psalm all week. It's part of me. Psalm 13, it's one of the shortest, simplest prayers for help in the psalms. It's also considered a model uh, prayer for personal lament, complaint. There's corporate lament and then there's personal lament. And this is one of the model prayers for that. Commenting on this psalm, the late Hebrew and Old Testament scholar, Professor James Mays, if you want a great commentary on the psalms, read this, read this guy's commentary, James Mays. This is what he has to say about Psalm 13. It's an extended quote, but it's worth hearing it in its entirety. The 13th psalm is the most compelling of all, or one of the most compelling of all the psalms. It has only seven lines. It is spare and chaste in style. The gaunt structure of its form visible at the first reading. And yet, with all its terse phrases and taut movement, it does not lose, but gains in passion and reality. The psalm is a prayer, a lament, an impatient complaint flung upward by one who can bear his agony no longer, and protests. Yes, protests that without the help of God, he cannot live. But the psalm is not exhausted in lament. Indeed, the whole is made up of seething complaint and serene confession, 
hung together by an appeal for life to take the place of dying. Psalm holds together so much of our life with God, before God. It gives voice to things that we don't always find easy to talk about, that sometimes we're embarrassed to talk about. God-forsakenness, abandonment, anxiety, inner turmoil, depression, the fear of death. Walter Brueggemann wrote, But how wondrous that these psalms make it clear that precisely such dimensions of our life are the things of prayer, the stuff of prayer. That's one of the gifts of the psalms, of this psalm. They they give voice to these things. They turn these things into words for us and turn those words into prayer for us, into a prayer that we can pray. Into a prayer that also gives us the grace of a, a movement, a journey. In Psalm 13, from the depths of despair, verses 1 and 2, to prayer, verses 3 and 4, to the heights of hope and trust, verses 5 and 6. So, from personal lament to a request for deliverance, to an affirmation and declaration of hope. From desolation to delight, from from agony to ecstasy. Just the mix of what it means to be a Christian. Someone living as as the people of God. And a journey we got to take again and again and again. Because we live in the already not yet. Right? We live, as we, we heard last week, at the dawn of a new day. Where light, the night is passing and the day has already arrived. Where things passing and things to come are grappling with each other. So these things are a constant presence in our life. The depths and the heights. And these psalms, this psalm helps us to bring all of that to God. And to journey with God in that. How long, O oh Lord? So like the, the chorus in U2's song, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, which says it four times. This psalm says it four times. This is intense, an intense question. And it's a question of this great emotional intensity because it's not directed at some person or even at oneself, but how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? That's not a polite, flowery, respectful prayer, so to speak. That's real, raw complaint. That's a punk rock prayer, to quote Bono. How long are you going to hide your face from me? So in the Hebrew imagery, the face of God shines like the sun upon us with blessing, with grace, with peace, that is, with, with shalom, which is a much deeper, richer word than our English word for peace. As the Aaronic blessing in number six puts it, the Lord bless you and keep you, right? Make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you 
and give you peace. Shalom. What we lit today, what candle we lit today. But David's not experiencing this. For some reason, the light from God's face is not reaching him. And so he wants to know, Lord, how long will you hide your face and these blessings from me? How long? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? For us, how long do I need to be in counseling, in therapy, in spiritual direction, before I get a breakthrough? How long? How long until this depression, this fog, this joyless, hopeless, endless heaviness comes off of my life? How long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long will this sickness, this wound, this struggle, this sin dominate me? For those living in a place like Ukraine right now, how long until my oppressors stop bombing me and our people? How long, O Lord? Where David hopes to find God, he finds an enemy enemy continually overwhelming him. And when that happens, we wonder, we ask, we cry, Lord, how long? And this is the stuff of prayer. It's so important for us to turn these things into words, into prayer before God. But we're not just looking here, right, for information. We're looking for God's intervention, right? When God's face will shine and dispel whatever, whatever darkness we're in. Which takes David from protest to prayer. Consider now, Lord, and answer me, O Lord my God. Do something worthy of the meaning of your name, Yahweh, O great I am, O God, who I know delivers from every oppression and slavery. Hear me. And then comes the main request of this psalm. Light up my eyes. So at the center of this psalm, just like at the center of our psalm last week, was in your word, I hope. That was the chiastic center of Psalm 130. Here is the chiastic center of Psalm 13. Light up my eyes. Lest I sleep the sleep of death. So for David, the stakes are high, right? It's a life-or-death situation for him. He He looks down this narrow corridor of his future, and unless he sees God intervening, he sees all lines converging on one end, and that is death. This might be a real physical death. This could be the death of depression could be anything that is robbing him and us of life, of true living, true human, God-honoring, flourishing. So what he sees is this this darkness of death in, in his future, and so he asks for God's light. 
In this context, it would be asking for the light of God's face to shine in this darkness of his and dispel it, to change the situation. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. He assumes here that God, his God, whom he knows, would not want any enemy or foes or oppressor to have such a tragic victory, defeat over him. He assumes God's going to be faithful to the meaning of his name, Yahweh. That he's going to keep his promises that he's made. He's going to be faithful to his steadfast love that's been revealed in history and in his own life. He trusts these are reasons enough to move God to act, to listen, and to light up his eyes. David's request to, for God to light up his eyes, it has two senses. One is, of course, a request for God to shine his face in the darkness and actually change the situation. Of course he's asking for that. But it's also a request for David to have eyes that can actually see that coming light that gives us hope. And that's the sense I'm going to be focusing on more for the rest of the sermon. That coming light, that light that for us is already shining on us. The true light is already shining. That's the light that we can normally be blind to. We don't see normally without the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to help us see it. We need God to open our eyes so that when we look down that corridor of our future, we see something other than just darkness and death and depression. We see something else. We see God's light breaking in. We saw God's light coming in. We see that when we look down there, we see that light coming that's going to overturn death, darkness, and depression. It's going to do and fulfill what we heard in our Isaiah passage. That's what God has promised is coming. Is that in our imaginative vision in our hearts? If not, the light of God has not been in our hearts shine through the Holy Spirit. Where we, we can say with E.E. E. Cummings, now the eyes of my heart have been opened. Now the eyes of my eyes, sorry, have been opened. Eyes that see the coming light, that dispels the darkness, that fulfills this Isaiah passage when the, the predator and the prey are living as one. When no one is going to hurt or destroy on all of God's holy mountain. It's not happening now. A light that's going to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea of the knowledge of God, of the Lord, of Yahweh, which includes greater Boston. Is that in our imaginative vision for our future? If not, we need to pray this prayer. <laughs> then we're going to be able to say with David, and I have trusted in your steadfast love because because he's trusted in that steadfast love of Yahweh, he's prayed this prayer. And because that 
because God has answered that prayer, he now has eyes to see God's love in his future. Look at what he says next. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So you notice now he's seeing and anticipating in his future, no longer that heart that he described that has sorrow all of the day. Now he has a heart in the future that's full of joy, that's rejoicing in the salvation of his Lord and God. He's gained hope because God has lit up his eyes for his future. I will sing to the Lord. Future. I will sing a new song because he has and he will deal bountifully with me. He has and he will do good to me because his, his love now has opened David's eyes to that coming light, to the light that's already shining on him. There's a New Testament version of this prayer found in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church that we heard this morning. Right? And he says, he prays that the Father of glory would send the Spirit to enlighten the eyes of their heart. Why? So that they would know the hope to which God has called them. That is, the riches of this glory that's coming the power, the creative, redemptive, coming power that raised Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit needs to come into them and enable their heart to see that hope that's coming, that's already shining on us. To see that, we need the Holy Spirit, the work, His work in our hearts, enlightening our hearts. So this is, this is something of what the art of, of spiritual direction is about, right? Noticing the light that's already shining around us and upon us that we can be blind to. This is what, what Steve's book on discernment is about. Noticing God and everything. Noticing the light of Christ in your life every day. And we have a huge part to play in this, a big part in the seeing and perceiving and noticing. But God has the greatest part in this. And that's why the most important thing we need to do in this is to pray, Lord, light up my eyes. If we don't, we can become like, remain like the dwarves. In C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, one of these memorable scenes, if you've read it, you can maybe remember when Aslan, he, he shakes his mane in this scene, and it produces this amazing feast for the dwarves. They're sitting there, and there's this amazing, abundant feast all around them. And they're holding these goblets, these golden goblets filled with wine from the promised land, but they don't see it, Right? They don't taste that. All they see is what you would find in an old barn. Hay, old turnips, water from a donkey's drinking, dirty water from a donkey's drinking trough. That's all they can see and taste because they're blind. 
Their senses have not been awakened by the Holy Spirit. That's what can happen to us. Lord, light up our eyes lest we sleep this dwarf, dwarfish sleep of death. If we've settled on a cynical posture towards life, where all we see is the worst in people and in culture and in institutions, we've got dwarfitis. And we need to pray, Lord, light up my eyes, lest I sleep this sleep of cynical death. If we stop taking risks, relationally, vocationally, if we've become obsessed with safety, if we only anticipate terrible things from our future, if this has become our way, we need to pray. Lord, light up my eyes, lest I sleep this sleep of anxiety and depression that's become my way. If we want to live out our true identity as the people of God, the people of the God of hope, then we need him to light up our eyes. We need him to enlighten our, the eyes of our heart by the Holy Spirit, that we would know the hope to which we have been called to the power, the creative power that raised Jesus from the dead that will enable us to see and live in the dawn of a new day. And the more we do that, the more God opens our eyes, the more we're going to resonate actually with E.E. E. Cummings. And if you, you need to read the whole of this poem. But he says this, and we resonate with this when the Holy Spirit does this in our hearts. I who have died am alive again today. And this is the son's birthday. This is the birthday of life and love and wings and of the gay great happening illimitably earth. In the old sense of that word gay, joyful, happy. That's the kind of thing we see. That's the kind of thing that happens to us when God opens our eyes. How long, O oh Lord, Light up our eyes, O oh Lord, and we will rejoice in the light of your salvation. Maybe so.